This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading today comes from various selections from the book of Proverbs. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. May you see it. I want to start off with a story that inspired me. It's an odd story to inspire me, but I'll explain it as we go along. On May 2nd, 2003, there was a man named Aaron Ralston. Of 20, he's 27. He was from the town of Aspen, and he was quite the outdoorsman, quite the athletic specimen, and he went to where the adventure was strenuous. So we went hiking in southern Utah in Blue John Canyon. I've never been there, but I hear it's really remote, and remote being an understatement. And in his expedition that Saturday, he found himself pinned under a 1,000-pound boulder. His arm was stuck, and there's nothing he can do. By Tuesday, he ran out of water. By Thursday, he started realizing he was in really serious trouble because he's been pinned down for multiple days now, and there's been a sight of no one where he was. So he realized it was time for dramatic action. And so he took out his pocket knife, which was a little blunt, and he started cutting off his right arm below the elbow. After he was finished cutting off his arm, he applied a tourniquet, he applied first aid, and then he rappelled down the canyon with one arm. This dude's a man. But, uh, but after doing all that, he then ran around at the base of the canyon until he found someone who could get him medical attention. Aaron chose life. When he was facing death dead on, he chose life. He did everything in his power to stay alive. Now, this story is inspiring to me because it reminds me of a quote by a guy named J.C. Ryle. Now, J.C. Ryle is an Anglican bishop from the 1700s from Liverpool, actually. And he wrote prolifically. His book on holiness had a huge impact on me as a college student. And there's one specific quote on prayer that's always stuck with me. It's this. We must wrestle earnestly in prayer like men contending with a deadly enemy for life. Now, this sounds like war. This sounds drastic. What on earth does he mean? Who prays like this? What is earnest prayer? On one level, he's a tightly wound intellectual, so he's hard to dismiss because the man loved the scriptures. And on the second level, he didn't play with snakes. He wasn't overly charismatic, and so we can't dismiss him on that level. We just got to take him dead on. And so when you listen to his quote and reread it and begin to contemplate it, you begin to start asking questions of yourself or maybe the church that you attend. When did you or when did we stop really praying? What caused us to stop praying like J.C. Ryle encourages us to? Well, one reason, we, didn't want to, we, want to, we don't want to lose control. God might actually answer our prayers. If we pray for faith, then we might actually have to follow him and leave our ambitions and our dreams. If we pray for patience, then we might have to face trials. If we pray for humility, which is really dangerous, he might actually humble us. If we pray for self-control, he might test us. At the heart of it, we just don't trust our God, and we want to remain in control. Another reason is we don't want to admit we need to change. Um, equal opportunity here. There's broken people and not so broken people here. And one of the things I love about City Church is I've, you can pick up very quickly is we're okay with you being sinful. 
We're okay with you being very messed up. We think the gospel is big enough for that. But even with us comfortable with being messed up, modern psychology makes emotions sacred now and untouchable. And so in our need to be authentic, if anyone tries to interact with your emotions, you're like, hey, don't suppress my emotions. We've now become ruled by them. Emotions are a reality and nothing else. In a previous era, we dismissed our emotions, and now our emotions mean everything. They define reality. And so there's no room for doubting them, and there's no room for questioning them. But again, we don't have to be alone and fearful and cynical and grumpy. We can pause long enough to take our emotions to the throne of God and have him impact them. Another reason we stop praying is we don't think prayer works anymore. Uh, my son's a nine-year-old, and he has a three-year-old sister that absolutely adores him. And she constantly wants to be with him and play every game possible with him. And within minutes every day, he gets really grumpy, very unkind to her, and he gets so frustrated with her. So one night, as usual, when I'm putting him to bed and we pray together, he started praying. I was very earnest. God, help me to be cheerful tomorrow. I was like, wow, that's really sweet. It's kind. I told his mom, and that was great. And then the next day, there was Lily annoying him on some level, and he got really grumpy. And then later on, he's like, I prayed to God that he would make me cheerful, and he didn't make me cheerful, and this prayer stuff doesn't work. And I'm like, Jacob, Jacob, notice how there was no personal responsibility in your statement there. We expect when we become Christians, like Jacob, for God to come through on certain levels. That we'll have certain prayer requests, and he better meet them on our timetable with very little effort on our parts. And if he doesn't, we lose hearts and we stop praying. Finally, prayer exposes our hopelessness. See, it's scary to pray because sin, there's a sin that may be in your life that never goes away, no matter how hard you battle against it. There's that job or husband or wife, security, peace, a child that never comes no matter how hard you pray. There's that spouse that never seems to change no matter how hard you pray. There's that child that never gets better. It's scary to be weak and dependent and needy. And so we stop praying, really praying. So what do we do? Well, we're in a series in Proverbs, and we turn to the book of Proverbs. There's only a handful of verses that talk about prayer, and they, they all go for the jugular. They pull no punches. And, the, and these few verses, they rattle us. And so as we go through them, you'll see a couple of things. First, we'll see the point of prayer. Secondly, we'll see a couple of things that prevent prayer. And finally, we'll see the power for prayer from the book of Proverbs. So first, the point, which is praying through weakness. Proverbs 15, 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable him. See, the person making the sacrifice is the issue, not the sacrifice itself. The sacrificial system, even though it was very detailed and intricate, wasn't at odds here. Uh, Now, let me explain this. What makes a person wicked? Well, take Genesis chapter 4. Very early in Genesis, you see lots of wickedness. And Cain and Abel, they're brothers, and they both had offerings. And Abel's was accepted by God. But when Cain brought his, it wasn't accepted. It had something to do with his heart. The scripture didn't go further than that. But it made him furious that he could not manipulate God with his offerings. So there are specific behaviors that really please God. And in this passage, we quickly see that non-manipulative, non-controlling prayers and offerings are a delight to him. And Jesus understood this. When he constantly interacted with religious people, he would tell stories to help them to see that they're messing everything up. And here's one he said in Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give the tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's clear from Jesus' story, the man who doesn't try to manipulate God with who he is and what he does has a righteous prayer. So what is non-manipulative prayer? John Bunyan, who you may be familiar with, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress in the 1600s. He's another dead guy, obviously. He had this to say, When you pray, rather let your heart be without words than your words without hearts. So how do you pray? According to Bunyan, Bunyan encourages you to groan with all earnestness. Just groan with all earnestness. Now, where would have John Bunyan have learned this? I think he learned this from the Apostle Paul. We saw this in our worship folder already this evening. Romans 8.15, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, you've heard the word, if you've been in the church a little while, the word Abba used often, and we say it means daddy, right? Well, daddy's too complex for the word Abba. Abba has no etymology. Kids who can say daddy and mommy can already manipulate their children. The best way to say this word is just dada. Uh, before my wife and I and our children moved down um, from Chapel Hill down to Orlando, uh, we had this uh, goodbye party. God had answered all these tremendous prayers for us, including the selling of our home. And so we just wanted to invite all these people to our house to just rejoice in God's provision. And we had plenty to eat and drink. We had a great old time. But one of the things my wife made were her chocolate chest pies, which are fantastic, with a little whipped cream on top. It's good stuff. And so my daughter who's three, mind you, found me. It's like nine o'clock at night. We should have had our bed by now, but you know, we're having a good time. And she walks up to me and says, Daddy, can I have a piece of chocolate cake? And she just kind of head tilted and she was just, she was working it, you know? And normally I would have felt under that pressure, but I was like, it's nine o'clock. She has caffeine. I mean, she's going to be up to like 12. I was like, no, baby, you can't have any. And then I watched her. She unfaced, wheeled around and just hot-tailed it to my wife. And then she turned on her charm and a big smile and tilted her again. And it's like, Mommy, can I have some chocolate pie? Which Kim said, yes. She was calculated. Kids like this are notorious and they're evil and they know how to use daddy and mommies against each other. So you have to go younger. You have to go younger to understand the force, the heart of the word Abba. In our church, think of the boys that were just baptized last Sunday or Brennan Riddle or... uh, Liam, Sin, all these getting on the older side, or Asher. When they cry out, what are they crying out for? A food, cleaning, presence, smile, arms. And when they cry out, it's right for them to cry out. Their mommies don't chastise them for crying out or the dads, but no, they pick them up and go, I'm so glad you cried. You know, what's wrong? What can I do for you? Do you see what Paul is trying to teach us? The, the, the best type of prayers The most earnest prayers are the ones that come from deep within and they're not articulate. They might not even be rational, but it's a cry out to our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Father would not want it any other way. The word for cry here is deep emotion and distress. So when the Spirit of God shows up in your life, what happens? Again, let's stay in Romans 8. What we see in the beginning of Romans 8, all creation is groaning in distress. Every bit of this world is going... Oh, this isn't right. It wants something more. And the Bible teaches us that God will make the new heavens, new earth. And that is what all of creation is groaning for. But we also see that when the spirit comes into our lives, we join creation. And each and every one of us, we groan because our lives aren't the way we think they should be. And we see things that are wrong and we're not living to the potential God's made us. And it just makes us groan at the futility and the fury of our lives. But someone else groans. 
And this is what's breathtaking about Romans 8. The Spirit groans. The Spirit of God, he's inside of you and he groans. Sometimes he doesn't have words to communicate to the Father and to the Son. And he groans on our behalf. Do you see how marvelous this is? God knows that the Christian life is experiencing weakness. It's experiencing disappointment, experiencing failure, experiencing great loss. And the Spirit enables you to cry data in the midst of all of that. The Spirit himself gives you a desire to be in his very presence. Richard Sibbs, uh, 18th century Scottish Presbyterian, I think, had this to say. God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. That's liberating. If you're like me, a religious professional, I can whip out some darn good prayers. I can stick some D's and vows in there, and I can make it sound snazzy, but I might have no heart in that. And when God invites me and you to, it's not perform for him, but to be confused and to groan and to complain and to cry out, and he wouldn't have it any other way. So this is counterintuitive. Are you willing to groan? Are you willing to cry out? Are you willing to be earnest? Are you willing to pray with all heart? Then you will grow. My wife and kids are having a much harder transition than I am as we move down here. We've been here about a month now. And you know, I really love my job. I love the staff I'm working with. Has, I've had a blast. You've been so kind to me. Now, my wife and child has experienced, children have experienced your blessings as well. But at the end of the day, my son over the last month had two hours of playtime with a boy his age until lunch today where he had his third hour. He's groaning. He's in pain. He's so sad. He's having nightmares every night. My wife, she has been reached out to so well. You know, she's been invited to go out and have dinner or girls' night or whatever more times in the last month than she's had the previous six months. But at the end of the day, she still doesn't really know anybody. And I can see it when she's overwhelmed and tired at night. She, she doesn't even have words to express. I've, I've tried to get my family to pray through some of this. And my son and my wife... They don't have words. And I'm like, it's okay. Sweetie, just groan with me. Let's just utter words in futility. It's okay. Well, one thing I've learned from my wife really quickly the last three weeks is I don't groan enough. I don't want to see my weakness. I don't want to engage the futility of my life. I want to think everything's okay and I want to be this great guy. And so every time I feel that groaning and crying and wailing coming up, I just stuff it down and I motor through and it inhibits me from knowing my Father in heaven and hearing the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father. J.C. Ryle's right. This is worth fighting for. There's a deadly enemy that doesn't want you to enjoy this peace, this rest, this grace. And the best thing you can do is to fight for this type of earnest prayer. So how are your prayers? Are they uncalculating or are they calculating? That's not a good question. How are they calculating? Where are your prayers calculating? And how can those prayers be changed? Do you find yourself groaning and out of control? What inhibits you from being someone who groans often? Do you cry out to not even have words to express? Do you see that you're a sinner before the presence of a very loving God? Do you have a desire to be in his presence and rest there? If you find yourself saying no to many of these questions, are you willing to change? Are you willing to take a step towards engaging your heart? And are you willing to pray like one contending a deadly enemy for your life? 
now that we see that the point of prayer in the book of Proverbs is weakness, I want to look at three things that prevent us from praying with weakness. The first is we depart from the word of God. Look at Proverbs 28, 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Abomination, it's a strong word, isn't it? You know, you know, the author here isn't, you know, pulling back at all here. It's being used in an ethical sense, like the preceding verse, which we're not looking at. There's this law of reciprocity. If you're deaf to God's instruction, he'll be deaf to you. There's no wiggle room there. And the word even here emphasizes prayer. His behavior is so bad that his prayer life is totally dismissed by God. Now, these are very heavy words. Obviously, the author is going for the juggler. He's trying to get our attention. Let me use my kids again to explain this. When my son and daughter, being children, want to go on their way and do something that we don't want to do, what happens? My wife and I will say, no, nah, that's not a really good idea, and we give them an alternative. Then what happens? Well, nine out of ten times, they still go on to do what they want to do, and what do we do? Well, Kim and I try and intervene. My wife and I are not perfect parents at all, and we have a lot of room to grow, but typically most of what happens next is for their benefit. They can't see that the boundaries and the timeouts and the discipline and the loss of privileges is all for them. It's all about one big plan about their hearts and, and how they can grow and be nourished and go in the right direction. And we are no different. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you and you're the child of God. And he disciplines because he wants to liberate you from sin and death and for you to enjoy his rich mercy. And so he gives you his law not, not to harm you, not to pin you in, but to liberate you to actually have freedom that you've never tasted before. Why? So we won't be hypocrites and actually trust his word that there's life in them. Jesus understood this. Let me read Matthew 6, 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you see the beauty of the law here? Here again, Jesus is pointing us away from hypocrisy to weakness. Now, this analogy is going to be this. This analogy used by Jesus is going to be a little foreign to us. If we lived in first century Jerusalem, and we lived in a home, all the rooms are kind of interconnected. There is no privacy, you might say. All the rooms kind of flow into one another, and often, if we were poor, we'd all be living in one big room, anyways. The only place you could get privacy in your house is the storeroom. That's the only room that has a door. There's no windows. It's dark. There's probably some weed in there. But you can close the door and you can have privacy and you can talk out loud, which is what Jesus is inviting here. So the secret prayer or storeroom prayer is close to like closet prayer, you know, master bathroom prayer. But, you know, it's just wherever you need to go to be alone and quiet. How do you know if you're a hypocrite? Do you want to be just with him? Do you look to steal away time with them, even if it's two minutes in your closet? What is more appealing to you, your inbox, your iPhone, or time in your closet? The substance of your spiritual life can often be measured by your desire to be alone with your Heavenly Father. Do you have this? Is it a goal of yours to have nourished a relationship with God where the thing you look for the most is getting away a couple of minutes with him. One of the things I love about City Church is we do city Bible reading. And in city Bible reading, we, we literally read two chapters, all of us together, every day. And there's no reason 
all of us can't find a bathroom, sit down, read two chapters, and just groan and respond in, in, with no manipulation, with no agenda, but to read God's word and just to respond in prayer. Have you made a plan to do this? If you've fallen off the horse, do you want to get back on and talk about this with the people in your city group? The second thing that prevents us from praying with weakness is we depart from the wisdom of God. Look at Proverbs 1, 2, 8 with me. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligent, but will not find me. Now, when we look at the verses independently, we miss out on the context. In verse 124, there, there's, there's the speaker saying, I call and you refuse to listen. But in verse 28, it says, they will call, but I will not listen. This chiastic parallelism is just to help us to see this isn't actually God talking, but lady wisdom or wisdom in general. And it doesn't matter how much your extreme effort is in the short term. If you've abandoned God and his ways and his wisdom over the long haul, if acutely you're trying to really make up for it and find his wisdom, you're never going to get it. The passage is really clear. It doesn't matter how hard you work. If you abandon wisdom, wisdom will abandon you. Years ago, I was at this conference for church planters. I was three years into my church plant in Chapel Hill. I was burned out. I was frustrated. I was angry. And I was like, I need a coach. So I went to this conference. I was really enjoying the speakers. And one guy was actually saying, hey, you need to get a coach. I was like, all right, this is great. But then he said, don't get a coach if you won't take his advice. If he tells you to do something, you have to do it. And if you're not going to get a coach and listen to a coach that way, then don't get a coach. And I remember thinking, going, I don't know about that. I mean, Chapel Hill and Carborough, it's a really liberal city. Not everyone else gets that. And my church is really unique and special. I just don't think he'd really understand and get it. And he doesn't know all the facts. He doesn't know my story. And then I start realizing, oh, rats, I'm really proud. I, I don't want to listen to this guy, and I don't want to submit to somebody. Seven years of being a pastor, it's been fun to see that cycle. Well, not so fun, but illuminating to see that cycle within many of the people in my church. You know, whatever reason, they'll come to me for advice, and they'll see other folks in the church that seem wise, and they'll ask for the same advice, and then it's often not taken. And then it went on. Those folks go on to make a bad decision. They complain about it later, and they tell me about it. And I want to say in those moments, I told you so. I wish you'd listen to me, but you can't say that because you're their pastor. And so you go, oh, I'm so sorry. And, and so what, which, what happens is a lot of times you see this in dating relationships, right? You're like, I'm really interested in this guy. He's a deadbeat. Don't date him. No, 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 you don't understand. It's like, no, I do understand. You don't understand. Don't date him. And then they date him. Like, oh, it was awful. It's like, I know. And so what happens? It's more than an authority issue. It's far more than an authority issue. See, when you run from wisdom, on the outside, it might not look like it. You know, because we know how to play this religion game, right? We'll go to worship. We might even do city Bible reading. We'll go to a city group. You know, we'll, we'll serve and like do the PowerPoints for worship or something, right? And, and we'll feel really good. Like, gosh, look at all these ways I'm serving God and stuff. But in the midst of that, you're still charting your own course, you're wandering far from God, and then you complain that God is far. It's not the trappings that make a spiritual life, but it's never too late to change the course. Okay, here's another way to integrate this all. Uh, Ted's been preaching through the book of Proverbs for you. I've been listening to those sermons. I've been catching up a little bit. He's done a phenomenal job. I don't know if half of you recognize how good the teaching you're getting is. It's better than most of the teaching you're going to receive around the country. And it's phenomenal. And what I love about his series on Proverbs is he, had, he has a lot of great angles and a lot of good things. And for many of us, and like including myself, I can sit and just listen to an MP3 and go, wow, that was really good. I 
feel really challenged. And then I'm like, I got lunch appointment, and I just take off. And what living in wisdom looks like is all of us slowing down enough and rearranging our lives around the wisdom that's given to us in the scriptures and making a plan and living our life around that plan. The third thing that prevents us from praying with all earnestness, praying with weakness, is we depart from the ways of God. Look at Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the poor will himself call out and not be answered. There's no wiggle room in this verse, is there? It deals with the insensibility to justice. The word cry here is a technical word for a loud cry and acute distress, someone seeking deliverance. It's a very emotion-laden word. But this verse serves an accusation against us or an appeal, possibly. See, when you're in urgent need and God does not answer, it's because the author wants you to feel the logical force of this consequence and cause. If you don't listen to the poor, I'm not going to listen to you. But one of the coolest things I got to participate in before I moved down to Orlando, I worked my last two years in chapel at it, was building a coalition in my city where African-American and white and Asian churches would all get together and start refurbishing houses for widows in some of the most distressed African-American neighborhoods in our city. Never had there been a coalition built across racial lines and never had anything like this been done. But since I was Asian, I could pull this off. For, seriously. You know, because I was close enough for the African-American guys and I played high school football and that, that went somewhere. And plus, I worked my tail off for four years just to build relationships with them. So those guys already knew. Those are the guys I already hung out with. And they're like, yeah, Ruth, you're in, we're in. The, the, the white pastors, not to, no, I'm not throwing all you all in with them, okay? But the white pastors, they're, they're a lot harder to get on board with this. And I had to spend a lot more time on this. But at the end of the day, we got everyone together. And we started a house, Miss Fogey's house. She lived on Sunset, and it was a blast doing that house. Now, her house was a mess. Oh, my goodness, there was so much wrong. And so we were working with all these contractors who were like our little team leaders, and we figured out that if we got a bunch of people on one day, we could get the project started because everything was interrelated. We had to take all the stuff off, and we needed everyone working at once. And so we had like a call to arms to all the participating churches and organizations. And we needed guys and gals that knew how to hammer. This wasn't one of those little habitat things where you could show up and like, here's a brush, up and down, think it's karate kid. It wasn't anything like that. You know, I wanted, I wanted guys that already had their tool belt. You know, we had one gal. She was not afraid to climb the ladder and walk around the roof. And I was like, that's the type of women we're looking for. And so, you know, this is what we were doing. And so I was calling around and then I, I talked to a buddy of mine. He was a, a, a kind of a mercy pastor, mercy and justice guy, community guy at his church. And he said, uh, don't you think a whole day is a lot to ask? I was like, you think a whole day is a lot to ask? I was like, well, why do you ask that question? I was, well, there's a guy in my church and he really wants to help, but he only had a half day on Saturday. And I was wondering if he could use a half day. I was like, well, no, because our project's really complicated. We need the whole day. Because if he leaves halfway through, you're going to leave a team halfway hanging and that's just not going to work. So what did you say to him? Well, I agreed. I thought the whole day was a lot. And then I paused. And I mean, I wanted to reach through the phone and grab his neck, but I thought maybe Jesus wouldn't want me to do that. So I was thinking like, okay, okay what can I do? What can I do? So then I said, well, what would Jesus say? Do you think that a day is too much to ask for a godly widow? What would Jesus think? Now, here's a little backstory that my buddy knew. This woman had been abandoned by her church. They tried to help her problems, but they got so overwhelmed to them, they just left, and they never came back to help her. Her husband used to be a pastor. 
He was a day laborer by day, and he, he worked on houses, and by night and Sundays, he pastored a church. And so I, I asked my friend, this could be your wife one day. This could be my wife one day. And then I asked him, what is pure religion? What does James teach us? Isn't it not to care for the widows in their distress? Why did you agree with them? What's wrong with you that you agreed with them? You're the mercy guy in your church and you're serving the model. You're, stand, you're setting the foundation, the model, the, the bar for what it means to love our neighbor. Let me just pack another story onto this. There's a guy in my church and he, he's one of those guys that he can get it done. And so he was there hammering away and doing all sorts of stuff. And then he had to leave after lunch. I was like, why are you going? We really need you. And he's like, well, you know, we've been traveling all week and I haven't been home at all in the last four days and I really need to go home. And I was like, okay, I get that. Uh, we're going to miss you, you know, what guys do, a little fist bump, chest bump, and he headed off. And, and so that was cool. And then later on, I interacted with his wife that Sunday. And I was like, hey, wh- what'd you do when your husband came home? He's like, oh, I had a long week. And so I just gave our daughter to him, and I went shopping for four hours because I haven't been able to go shop a long time. I got some cute dresses and stuff like that. And, and I remember just going, oh, my goodness, this is awful. And so I've been asking myself, who was he helping that morning? Himself or the widow? Who was he loving that morning? Himself or the widow? Here's my point. You can be an amazing volunteer. You can serve and still be totally insensible to justice. You can be plugged into your city and from your heart of hearts really not care or have real compassion, or real eyes to hear the cries of injustice in our city. You see, your prayer life really matters. Let me connect the two. When you are a praying man or woman, you begin to reflect the very image of your God more and more. Why? What happens when you cry dada in an invulnerable state? You grow. You become more like your dada. And your dada's character and personality and ways become your ways because your dada is in a transformational business. So what happens? Take Psalm 146.9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. What's beautiful about the Psalms is over and over and over, you hear God's distress. He's the one that hears the cries of the orphan and the alien and the widow, and he he can't help but care for them. And so as you grow, as you begin to know your daughter, as you're weak and he transforms your character and you begin to taste his goodness and grace, you become more and more like him and you care about widows and orphans. I don't want you to miss the weight of this verse. It's a litmus test. How do you know if you're a man or woman growing in your prayer life? You hear the cries of injustice in your community. You long to know the cries of injustice in your community. Because the only way to do that and sustain that without burning out is by knowing your dada. So, how do we pray with weakness? How do we move beyond these things that prevent us? Where is this power for weakness? And we can find it in Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, don't think presence or distance with this verse, but favor He does actually hear the prayers of the wicked, but what this implies is rather a negative response. So let's do this really logically. Who can approach God in prayer? The righteous. Okay, if you take the book of Proverbs, how do you understand who is righteous? Well, the righteous man or woman is those who treat their neighbors well. 
you utterly love your neighbors. You live for the good of your community before the good of yourself. Well, there was one man who perfectly loved his neighbors, and his name's Jesus. And when you look at the Gospels, his life is radiating. He did nothing his father did not tell him to do. His father's words to him were literally bread. Every situation you see in the gospel, even when it seems like he's being a jerk, he's really loving his neighbor. When he's around the Pharisees, he confronted them with love because he wanted to see how they were twisting pure and beautiful religion and tying millstones, big weights around people's necks. And when he's around the broken, he embraced them. He touched them. He cried and wept with them. He dined with them. He always loved his neighbor. He did everything that was righteous. That righteous one is what the scripture tells us. He is the one that died on the cross. And here's what's important about the cross. What Jesus physically went underwent was gruesome, was awful, but that was only a little bit of it. Naked to our eyes, but through the scriptures we understand that Jesus stood for us on the cross. All our sins were put on him and the very wrath of the Father went all upon Jesus. Every bit of sin, every bit of unrighteousness was dealt with on the cross so that we who are filled with God's spirit, Christians, we can approach our heavenly Father just like Jesus can and we can be called righteous. There is only one that called God Father and that was Jesus. And because of his death for us, he liberates us. He enables us to call his heavenly father, our heavenly father as well. Does the injustice of the cross get to you? That's what this proverb is inviting us to see again and again. Only the righteous are heard. And what makes you righteous is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when that injustice of what he underwent on the cross is new and fresh and large and warm and warming your heart, it will make you move quickly to weakness. Who else would you want to bow before but one who died for you? (laughs) Who else would you want to groan before and cry out for help than the one who sent his only son for you? And when you allow the gospel to be new and fresh and large before you, it will drive you to weakness. And when you're weak, you will know your heavenly father. Let's pray. Father, I'm a pastor. I'm a religious professional. And I know hypocrisy. I know what it means to say words I really don't feel and believe. And I know what it means to perform. And so, Father, we beg you, forgive us. Forgive us for performing, for having words come out of our mouth in prayer that there's no heart behind Forgive us for running away from you. And we, we beg you, oh, Heavenly Father, help us to see the glory of your Son, the beauty of the cross. Help us to find weakness in him. Help us to know his loving touch, this love that will not let us go. And in that, liberate us to groan and to be weak and enjoy your presence and care. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.